You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. And amen. Please be seated. Uh, again, thank you to our worship team uh, for leading us this morning. That was powerful. Uh, if you want to begin out your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to continue our, ser- our series. Uh, we'll study this book all the way up until Good Friday and Easter. Uh, you know, I was thinking about my life before kids this week, B.C., before children. And you, you, as a dad, as a parent, you really you end up spending hours, I mean, huge chunks of your life doing things you never dreamed you would be doing. Uh, and one of those for me with my little kid, one of my kids in particular, uh, was watching uh, a group of five people on TV. I think we have a picture of who I'm talking about. Uh, now, I'll give a hypothetical five dollars to anybody who can name who this is. Who is this? The mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I think Damaris likes the Power Rangers back there. Uh, ironic, you may not guess. It's not. It's not my son who loves the Power Rangers. It was my daughter who loves the Power Rangers, and. Uh, they're shockingly complicated, these Power Rangers. There's like 15 different iterations of them, and they, do, they can do all kind of crazy things. So one of the things they can do, so every episode, you know, there's a bad guy. They go to fight the bad guy, and they transform into this fighting robot. So there are people in onesie pajamas. Then they transform into robots, individual robots, and those are called Zords. And those words are pretty good. They can fight and they can kill most of the bad guys. But before, by the end of the episode, there's some like super bad guy that all the Zords on their own cannot defeat on their own. But there's no episode where the Power Rangers are going to lose. And so what do they do? They all come together, all five Zords together. They come together to form what is called a Megazord. And there's the powerful Megazord. And so it's each Ranger together and it has this powerful sword. Am I getting this right, Hannah? So far, so good? Okay. (laughs) Um, And so they get this powerful weapon, and together they can defeat uh, this, like, super bad guy. And this is a common theme. There's lots of cartoons and movies like this. When I was a kid in the 80s, it was uh, Captain Planet, you know, uh, Earth, Wind, Fire, Water, and Heart come together, and they summon... Uh, they summon Captain Planet. But it's this, this old theme of, you know, the sum is greater than its parts, than just all the vi- individuals come together. You know, I, I think today, though, maybe uh, our culture, the, the past couple years, all the things and changes we've experienced, I think we live in a culture that's asking if that's still true. I think maybe the social question of our day is, is it worth it to get together? Right now, I think every company is asking this question. Is it worth it for us to get everybody together? Most ministries are asking this question. Even families are asking this question. Why gather together? I mean, we have all this wonderful technology. You know, we can, it allows us to communicate whenever we want to whomever we want, no matter how far apart we are. We have countless online communities. Hey, even church. Hey, we all have a Bible. We all have easy access to any Bible that we want. We can all go home and read it. We all have phones and computers. Y'all, this very morning, I hate to make you regret coming here, but this very morning, all of you could pull up probably 100 sermons better than the one you're going to hear this morning. (laughs) My new neighbor, Ron, over there. (laughs) 
He just baked me some yummy baked goods, so there's, there's grace for that, Ron. There's grace for that. You know what? And I think if we're honest, all, all those other online options, they will require less effort, less hassle, and probably be personally a lot safer, wouldn't they? So why are we here? Why are we gathered together in the midst of so much technology, so many options? You know, I think these days a lot of people, and maybe this is you this morning, just kind of feel meh about the church. I mean, it's got some good things. It's got some drawbacks. I could kind of take it or leave it. You know, it's got some benefits. It's got some hassles. And so I think, listen, it's not that most people are against the church, but a lot of people are not for the church either. A lot of people, when it comes to church, they're like that father who took his family to visit the new church, and as soon as they got in the car, he started critiquing, you know, that sermon's too long, I didn't like that song, this person, nobody said hey to me. And the little boy in the back, the 10-year-old boy, he wanted to make his dad feel better about it, and so he's, he remembered the time they passed the offering plate, and he said, well, cheer up, Dad, you got to admit, that was a pretty good show for a dollar. <laughs> you know, and I suppose if that's all, if that's all church is, you know, a pretty good show for a dollar, then... Maybe it's not that all that important that we gather together. But I think we have to ask ourselves, what, what that describes, is that what Jesus died for? Is that what he rose again to establish? Is that what he said the gates of hell will not prevail against? I don't think so. I think God desires so much more for his people than a pretty good show for a dollar. I think there is a megazord. That God intends when his people gather together, there is something greater that happens than just the sum of all the parts and all the individuals. Our title for this study of 1 Thessalonians is called Hope in Hard Times. And we've talked about the context a lot where, man, what started as a great revival pretty quickly turned into persecution in Thessalonica. And Paul is telling them how to handle this. And he's telling them, hey, if you try to go at it alone, you're sunk. If you let the enemies divide you, you will not make it. But, but there is something that can give you hope in hard times. There is something that can make it worth it to gather together. What is that thing? It's love. It's love. Jesus said love is the essence of who God is. He said it's the ultimate apologetic. Jesus said love is the summary of the whole law. And love is the thing that you can neither give nor receive in isolation. Love is why we gather together. Love is our megazord. And he's going to show us four ways in this chapter. So we'll start at the end of chapter two, read all of chapter three. And almost the whole thing, it's about love. It's about Nearly every word is, is about his love for them or their love for him or all of their love for God. And so he's going to pull out four ways, four ways that the church loves together. We love when we walk together. We love when we sacrifice for one another. We love when we pick each other up. And we love when we pray. We love when we walk together, when we sacrifice for one another, when we pick each other up, and when we pray. Let's begin reading. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, 
but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's wanting them to know we love when we walk together. We love when we walk together. So Paul's telling them, hey, even though I physically can't, I had to go in another direction, spiritually, we are walking this road together. And notice, he says, there's an enemy trying to prevent that from happening. He identifies their enemy. And it's not these city leaders that are stirring up riots. It is Satan himself. And the enemy's greatest fear then and now is that Christians will love one another. And so he will do whatever he can to separate them. And Paul is telling them, you need to fight back. You know, I think many, the reason many think they don't need church is simply because they aren't fighting the battles they should be fighting. I love the analogy of a battleship versus a cruise ship. Now, y'all, if we ever end up on the same cruise ship together, I don't want to talk to you, okay? And I certainly don't want to meet new people. I don't want to get to know everybody on that boat and what they're doing. I want to sit by the pool with my little drink with the umbrella in it. That's what I'm doing there. Everyone else, leave me alone, okay? But if I'm on a battleship with the enemy, with heavy forces approaching, man, I, I want to know I'm not alone. I want to know that we are all there working and fighting together. And so this is Paul. Paul had the concerns of an admiral, not of a cruise director. He says the love, the unity of the church, it is with fighting for. In fact, we have to fight for it. So he reminds them, we walk together. He, he erases any of the perceived distance between him and them. He says, we're eager for you. Our great desire is for you. And next, Paul tells them his hope. He tells them what his hope in hard times is. And it's the genuine love they share. This is a very emotional letter from Paul. His emotion is unmistakable here. He calls them his hope, his joy, his glory, his crown of boasting. What is that? Y'all, this is, this is amazing. So that when Paul talks about this crown of boasting, this was a, a reward given uh, to the winner of a race, to an athlete. And so it's similar to a, a awarding a gold medal to an Olympian who just finished the race. Now, just using common sense, you would think if you just asked Paul, hey, Paul, man, what are you so looking forward to when Jesus comes back? What is your reward? What is your gold medal that's going to make all of these hard times worth it? You would think him to say, he would say, well, I get to see Jesus. Just me and Jesus. That's going to be great. That's not what he says. Paul declares his most esteemed reward for all of his hard work, his gold medal, wasn't personal accomplishments. It was a group of people. These Gentile believers who the old Paul, when he was Saul, would have not spent a second with, they are the whole motiv motivation for Paul's life. Now, that's different. You know, lots of people say, I love Jesus, and that's good. You should love Jesus, absolutely. But according to Paul, the mark of someone who really loves Jesus is someone who really loves Jesus' people. It's someone that loves so much, they walk with them all the way into eternity to be with Jesus together. Now, think about all an athlete does to win that gold medal. Man, years of work, years of dedication. Athletes, they can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to go to the track today and win me a gold medal. That's not how it works. 
He has to invest his life, but it's worth it for the reward he receives. And it's also worth noting that none of the spectators can get the gold medal. The ones just watching can't. Also, the critics, the commentators, they can't get the gold medal. Only those who invest their life in it get the reward, get the crown. And that's why Paul is saying Christians show their love by walking together. We don't just wake up at the end and say, oh, I hope I get my reward. No, no, no. We live today. We walk together today. We love together today. Now, each and every person here, all of us are willing to work for the things we really want, aren't we? We're all willing to work for a reward. So the question for us is, what is your gold medal? What is your reward? Love says, my reward is your good. That's the love of the cross. That's the genuine love Paul is demonstrating here when he says, you are my crown of boasting. So we love when we walk together. Let's keep reading. We'll pick it up at chapter 3 at the beginning. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So right here, Paul is telling them, we love when we sacrifice for one another. When we sacrifice for one another. Again, a little bit of background. After they're run out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night because they stir up a riot, they go to Berea, and those same angry, that same angry mob in Thessalonica follows them to Berea, runs them out of there. And from there, Paul separates with Silas and Timothy, who'd been with him. Paul goes to Athens, and then eventually he'll go on to Corinth, and he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. And Silas, he sends somewhere else. And, and so they're going to go report as Paul's in Corinth, he's waiting for Timothy to make it to Thessalonica and then come back to him. And until then, he has no idea what happened. And so verse 1 and 2, Paul is giving us a look into his heart in that time when he had no idea what happened. No idea how the Thessalonians are doing. It's that time before Timothy reports back to him. And so while he was waiting, he tells them he sacrificed for them. Well, what did he sacrifice? He sacrificed his plans. Paul wants to go to Thessalonica. He makes that clear, but he doesn't because he knows it'll cause trouble for them. Also, God does a lot in Athens and Corinth. Paul has his hands full. And when you have your hands full, you know who you'd love to have with you? Your most trusted uh, partner, Timothy. That's who he, but he says, no, I'll, I'll send Timothy to you. I'm willing to be alone so that Timothy can go to you. How easy would it have been to, for Paul to say, you know what? I have needs. I, I need him here, and so the, the Thessalonians will have to figure something else out. He also, we also find out he sacrificed his comforts. Paul's love for people, we have to pay attention to this. Paul's love for people created a heavy burden for him. It added worry, it added anxiety. Twice, in verse 1 and verse 5, he, he says his longing to be with them and his suffering being apart was so great, he says, I couldn't stand it any longer. In verse 7, he says he was in distress, he was afflicted because of his worry about them. Paul's love caused him sleepless nights. You know, lots of churches spend a lot of money and a lot of energy tailoring experiences to everyone's personal preference, you know, and I suppose, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to really love people, there will be times like Paul when your love for people will mean you sacrifice your comfort. When you don't know how things are going to work out. At times, you'll be uncomfortable because you love other people. 
So why do it then? Why, why, why subject, subject yourself to being uncomfortable, to worry, to anxiety? You know, there's an Old Testament scholar, Bruce Walke, who studied this idea of a righteous man throughout the Old Testament. He said, it's not what you think. You know, we think, okay, who's the most righteous person from the point of view from the Old Testament? Well, most would think a, a Pharisee, you know, someone who's obeying six million laws and kind of looking down his nose at people thinking he's better than everyone. We don't really particularly envision someone loving. But that's not what he said. He said, the righteous are always the ones willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And the wicked are always willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. That's the difference. And that's exactly what the picture Paul is painting here. Paul is willing to disadvantage himself for the advantage of the community. And that is love. So we love when we walk together, when we sacrifice together. Also, y'all, we love when we pick each other up. We love when we pick each other up. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. He says, that no, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. We love when we pick each other up. It's so interesting to me that Paul, when he writes, he doesn't say, hey, young believers in Thessalonica, I don't want you to suffer. No, no, no. He doesn't say that. He just says, I don't want you to suffer alone. In verse 3, he reminds him, I told you, we're destined for affliction. In verse 4, he says, remember, I, I told you to expect this. So he says, verse 2, verse 5, hey, this is why I sent Timothy, to help you endure, not avoid trials. I sent you someone who loves you to give you hope in hard times. You know, this is one of the ways we actually do not live in a Christian culture. We live in a why do bad things happen, whose fault is it, and where's my fix culture, don't we? But the Bible tells Christians, listen, it says, 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test your faith as if something unusual were happening to you, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. Persecution, trouble, hardships are expectations, not exceptions for Christians. More than that, the Bible says, repeatedly, I might add, that they can even be a cause for you to rejoice. I know, it sounds crazy. But it's, it's possible. In fact, it's a reality for believers. How? How can this be possible? We, we have an example here, verse 6 and 7, a real-life testimony of how we pick one another up. Paul, he's being incredibly vulnerable here. We, we don't see this all that often from Paul. 
He openly shares his fears, his doubts, his anxieties. He says he was distressed, he was afflicted. Twice he said, I couldn't couldn't take it any longer. I couldn't bear it. You can understand Paul's state maybe even a little better when you go read his letters to the Corinthians. So remember, he's writing this letter while he is in Corinth. He tells the Corinthians, hey, when I came to you from Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, when I came to you, I was weak, I was afraid, I was trembling. We know he'd been jailed and attacked by a mob. He'd been beaten. His name had been drugged through the mud. We know what a mess the church in Corinth was. He's dealing with problems that we've never faced here. I think as Paul sits in Corinth, I think he is burnt out. I think he's exhausted. I think he means it when he says, I couldn't stand any longer. And so this, this passage here, this passage is not about Paul picking them up. It's about them picking Paul up in his time of hardship. And what was it? What was it that these young baby believers did to pick up the great Paul? Well, he says it in verse 7. Your faith picked me up. Your faith gave me hope in hard times. Verse 8, he says this other amazing thing. He says, we live if you stand. Well, what on earth does that mean? It's a play on words. So twice where he said, I couldn't bear it any longer, that word for bear, that is the same word he's using for where he says, if you stand fast. So what's he saying? He's saying, you stood when I couldn't. You stood for me. In verse 9, he says, their faith produced thanksgiving and joy in me towards God. And there it is, rejoicing in suffering. How did Paul find rejoicing in suffering? It wasn't his own Superman, Lone Ranger faith. It was the faith of the people he loves. He says, your faith made me rejoice somehow. And this is how the Spirit works in us. The the sunshine of their faith broke through the clouds of doubt that obscured Paul's vision. You know, I think most of us, if we were in Paul's life at the time, we would have tried to cheer him up in a whole lot of different ways, you know? Maybe some distraction, maybe a gift, maybe a vacation, maybe some good old-fashioned pity. I don't know. But often what people need most is our faith. Faith becomes contagious to the people who love you and are loved by you. Our faith is the tool we use to pick one another up when we are struggling. I can say this is true for me. I've experienced this many, many times in this place. I know many of you have too. I've experienced this when someone else's faith, even when you don't know, God uses it to pick me up and pick others up. I've experienced it recently, watching a guy sick, coughing with a baby at home, Spend all weekend with our students to invest in them. I've seen it watching guys stay up late at night with some very, very, very boring meetings, helping plan for this church's future. I've seen people facing illness, facing challenges with uh, grace and nobility I can't imagine. I've seen it in people helping some very hard-to-love people get their kids back. You know, you see these, and even your moments of of struggle, you see other people's faith, and it picks you back up. When you see other people stand, it helps you stand. So you may not realize this, but what God is doing in you, in your life, isn't just for you. 
It's for others too. The whole community needs your faith and you need theirs. Listen, if even Paul isn't self-sufficient, then none of us are, are we? You know what? But Paul would have never found this joy. He would have never been picked up if he'd have just opted out, if he'd have taken his ball and gone home, if he'd have isolated himself, if he hadn't relied on others. So we love when we walk together, when we sacrifice together, when we pick each other up. And finally, we love when we pray. We love when we pray. Verse 10, Paul writes, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. We love when we pray for one another. You know, of all the things Paul shares about himself, I think the most profound thing that we get a glimpse into is his prayer life. He says we pray earnestly. So this isn't some stale discipline. This isn't, you know, some rote uh, memorization, some check on the checklist. This is fervent prayer. When I think of this word earnestly, I always think of, you know, little kids. Man, little kids teach us how to pray, don't they? Because when they want something, they don't forget to ask. They don't uh, get sheepish. What do they do? Mom, Dad, I want that. And they say it over and over and over again. He says we pray night and day. You know, when you really love someone, you pray constantly for them. And his prayers are purposeful. He asks for specific things for them. He prays for their spiritual growth. He prays that God would supply what was lacking in their faith. Now, that can sound like Paul's throwing shade there or something. It's not, he's not dogging on them. Their faith is strong. But remember, these are young Christians. And we know through the rest of the book, they've still got a lot of questions. They've got questions about the second coming, about spiritual disciplines and leadership and relationships. And so Paul's saying, you still got a lot to learn. Keep learning. Keep growing. And so I think it's worth asking. I asked myself this week, do you pray for spiritual growth of the people in your life? You know, as a parent, there's a lot of things you pray for for your kids. Do you pray for spiritual growth for your kids? Maybe even more than things like success or that they would be happy and well-liked and well-adjusted. We need to pray for this. Next, he prays for open doors. He prays, verse 11, that God would direct my way to you. Now, this is something Paul asked God for repeatedly, and it's never answered. It's not answered, at least not up to this point that we know of. This is interesting to me, you know, because Paul could have just done it. He could have just gone back to Thessalonica, but instead he prayed for it and awaited God's response. Now, I know, I get this way too. Sometimes it can feel like God's not doing his job very well. And so I need to step in and make something happen and do what he's failing to do. We have to remember, y'all, we are not architects for our own kingdom. We are ambassadors for his kingdom. And so sometimes we pray and we submit to his will, no matter what it is. We don't just bust down a door that he refuses to open for us. Third, and this should be no surprise, Paul prays for love. He prays that God would make them increase and abound with love. This is the key ingredient. It's a thing you can never have enough of. You always need more and more. 
Now, that part's not surprising. What is surprising is what he says about love. Notice, he says this love produces blamelessness and holiness. Now, it's blamelessness. Think, think outward and horizontal. Okay, so this has to do with your character, your integrity, and your relationships with other people. Holiness, think inward and vertical. This is your, your rightness with God. So wait, hold on. Is Paul, is he saying that my love can make someone else holy? Not quite. That's not quite what he's saying. Because make no mistake about it, Jesus makes you holy through his death and resurrection. That's how you get holy. So what's Paul saying? We got to notice a few things. First, we have to notice Paul isn't speaking to you individually. Paul is speaking redneck. All the yous are y'alls or all y'alls. So he's saying, hey, all y'all increase with love. He's saying somehow God gives all y'all mutual love for one another, and that is the method that God uses to make all y'all holy and blameless. Second, we have to notice, it's not your love. It's God's love. It's his. Your love, my love, can do diddly squat. His love is actually very powerful. The third thing we have to notice is this, the key is in this word established. So this, this word established, first we have to notice it's a passive verb. So it's something done to you, not by you. And it means to set something firmly. And so it's like the foundation of a building. Once you lay that foundation and it hardens, once it's set, it's set. And so Paul is not talking about some ongoing process of being made holy by how well you love everyone. No, no, no. God makes you holy, and once it's set, it's set. Once you're holy, there you remain. And it's the same word, but the opposite of that word lacking in verse 10. So remember, he prayed that God would give to them what they lack in their faith. So what's he saying here? He's saying God establishes what you were lacking through his love. That's what God does. And so this is a gospel, men and women, that Jesus loves you so much that he lived the perfect life you couldn't live, and he died your death for you. And then he said, let's play make a deal. How about I give you all of my righteousness, and I'll take that sin of yours off your hands? That's love. But how do you know about God's love for you? Well, God takes care of that part too. God makes his people increase and abound in his love. So he gives you his love to love other people with. And that's how they know the love of Jesus. So it's his love in Jesus that establishes you. It's his love in people that tells you about it. And this is how love is our megazord. This is the answer to our culture's question of why we gather together. By some cosmic mystery, the love of God flows through us so much that it changes eternal destinies. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying he, he does something in us together that we could never do individually on our own. Now, if that is true, it ought to greatly impact how we live our lives, shouldn't it? How? How do we love by walking together, sacrificing for each other, picking each other up, praying for one another? Good news, men and women. I just have one application this morning, okay? And it's this. It's simple. Show up. We show up. Now, 
it is not lost on me the irony of saying this on the Sunday of daylight savings and spring break. I'm not kidding. I had a moment about an hour and a half ago where I thought, uh-oh, I'm going to say this, and half the church is going to think I'm talking about them. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? Listen, this, this is so much bigger than church attendance. This is so much bigger than coming and sitting in a seat. This is showing up in love in people's lives. We're talking about our hearts. We're talking about what we truly love, what we place our hope in. We have to know, we have to know this, that we live in a world that is all too happy to help you create your own little cocoon that you can retreat into. And it will lie and tell you that that is where hope is, that that is where life is. We have to hear God's word tell us it's a lie. Don't let your busyness lie to you. Don't let even your bad experiences with church lie to you. Independence won't give you hope. Sleeping in won't give you hope. Picking, picking a few people that are easy to love, separating yourself from everyone else won't give you hope. Having everything perfectly tailored to you won't give you hope. Walking together in love with God's people will give you hope in hard times. And just in case we aren't convinced, Paul gives us one last reason of why we show up, why we show up in each other's lives. Paul closes by telling you, we, we show up because Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back with all y'all, with all of his saints. He's saying we show up because he will. You realize almost everything we do, almost everything we do won't matter one nanosecond after Jesus comes back. But what we do in here will only increase in eternity. That is what we were created for. That is what Jesus died for. And this, this is what Jesus is coming back for. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.